0: I'm Emily Kyle and this is LOCAL. This is a conversation with...
1: George Kennedy.
0: The heart of George's practice is drawing. It's intrinsic in every media he visits along the way, whether it be painting, printmaking or ceramics. I clearly remember meeting George during his residency at the Qbank Gallery. We sat with each other and connected through conversation in a way I hadn't expected. Enjoy him. Okay, so we start at the beginning. We start at the beginning of you. Where were you born?
1: Um, I was born in Hobart in 1995.
0: You're a young boy. <laughs> uh, and what was your family like? What was your childhood like?
1: really good actually. I had a fantastic upbringing. My parents were really keen on giving me and my brother all sorts of different experiences. So we were always out doing something. We did lots of camping, spending heaps of time in nature. We lived um, in front of a bush reserve, which has now been subsidised and there's been a suburb built on it, which is a bit sad. But at the time it was fantastic and they just let us go wild wandering the hills. We played heaps of sport. My older brother and I fought a bit, but, I mean, I think that's pretty standard. We still, we're a little bit patchy, but it's, we love each other. So, yeah, that's good.
0: And um, in terms of, you know, you describing this wilderness that you grew up in, um, I would assume lots of creative play?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. There were no sort of rigid structures on how we spent our time, really. It was go off and have fun and, you know, figure something out. So we were always making up games or, you know, making sculptures out of sticks and rocks or all sorts of things like that. In really special places, like uh, particularly Coles Bay we went to a lot. We'd go to St Helens. It was a lot of East Coast trips. I remember coming to Strawn when I was about 10 and just being blown away by... The forests, just the endless green. It was kind of like nothing I'd ever seen before, so it really has just stood out to me big time.
0: So I, I guess what I'm what I'm hearing is that you have a lot of experience being out in the world.
1: Yeah, I think so. But um, I'd say very specifically located to Tasmania. I've never been overseas, and I've spent probably very little time on the mainland compared to a lot of my friends and, you know, people at art school and just people I meet. Yeah, I've never spent much time up there. So it's really, if I have some time off, I'll jump in my little van with my mattress in the back and I'll go and find somewhere new in Tasmania to visit.
0: Yeah. You know, this question I think has been coming up a lot in terms of people visiting the West Coast and the perception very much is on isolation. You know, do you, do the people that live out here feel isolated? And um, you know, it's a funny one because when people mention that we live on an island, I'm 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 sort of like, oh yeah, it's it's an island. It doesn't personally feel like an island. It feels like part of Australia, just another state in Australia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: I'm wondering if that's a similar feel do, do you feel isolated?
1: <laughs> no, not at all. And I I I just assume like in my head, in my subconscious, I just assume that everyone in all the states feels a similar amount of separation from the other states. Mm. So then when someone says, oh, I drove from Adelaide to Melbourne the other day, I go, what? That's not possible. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't feel isolated at all. And I have, you know, I've driven from Darwin to Adelaide. That was my big mainland trip that I did with my brother a few years ago. And um, I think that was the most isolated I've ever been in Australia, was driving from... Darwin to Adelaide, but coming to the West Coast, because I've only been here for two weeks, but I think I've actually spoken to more people than I would in two weeks back in Hobart, because people are just more willing to engage with you on on the street. Um, Strangers, to me, locals will come up to the gallery and just knock on the door Mm. and give me a wave and I'll open it up and we'll have, you know, a 10, 20 minute chat. And I think that's amazing. That's really, really great.
0: So those experiences you view very openly, you're not, you don't have that reaction of, I'm actually doing something right now. Can you just?
1: No, not at all. Um, I think I do get social burnout, definitely, but, um, that hasn't been the case here because I think there's enough time in between those encounters. Like Mm. no one's expecting my attention for six hours or anything like that. It's just, um, I can sort of be in my little, my little hermit hut in the gallery It's nice though. I don't mind being in full view because obviously there's no curtains or anything on the windows Mm. and everyone walking past can see and I really like that I do feel like I'm engaging with the community but I can still focus relatively uninterrupted. But the interruptions are very welcome,
0: Mm. yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, when we met earlier in the week, I definitely feel like ah oh, I wish that that whole experience was recorded because it was such a it was such a beautiful conversation and such a such a breath of fresh air there's something about when I feel like in these settings when we're recording there is a, a little bit of um a performative aspect that you can't get away from
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: But you know, sitting there in the gallery with you and just talking It was such a beautiful flow and, um, that was, that was really lovely, but I've been thinking a lot about the things that we were talking about and, um, and your work, would you talk a little bit about the work that you're engaging with at the moment?
1: Yeah, definitely. So it's evolved a little bit since you last saw it. I, um, I'm a real fiend for making something one day and then the next day going, I don't like that anymore, painting over it completely. Or maybe painting over part of it, sort of like that, um, that old analogy of the chariot that's like if you replace each part slowly over time until none of the original parts are the same, is it still the same chariot? Mm. That's kind of what I feel like my paintings are like. They're these collages of adding on and on and on as I discover more and more and more about the environment around me. So some completely unrecognisable, some I bring like an entirely different energy too. But I'm actually, I'm really happy with where, where they currently are. So I mostly, I start with heaps and heaps of drawings. Um, that was my first week here mostly. I just walked around as many places as I could, asking locals the best places to go. Everyone was really generous with their time on that. And I'd just go there and I'd take my sketchbook and I'd just draw for a few hours. And then I'd take all those drawings back. And I blue tacked them all on the wall for my references because I, I didn't want to work from photos here. I feel like for me, it wouldn't have been authentic. A lot of people are really good at capturing authentically by using photos, but I feel like I really lose something. I don't quite have that particular skill. So then from those drawings, I try to find just a common theme in the lines, in what my visual interests were. And then... I start scaling them up onto canvas with maybe ink or, you know, sometimes just big Sharpies, sometimes Mm. an ink and a brush, and then I'll add colours. And one of the paintings I did about 10 layers of with colour and I just couldn't get that Queenstown colour right, which Mm. is insane to me because you come in, you drive in and you go, oh, there's a lot of orange and brown of the rocks and there's lots of green of the trees, but it's so much more complicated than that. So every time I was trying to get these oranges and greens and reds, I just couldn't do it, so I just painted over it and over it about ten times. Um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it now, though.
0: Good. That's good. I like that a lot, this um, getting the right green, getting the right orange or red. and
1: Yeah, and, well, by, by right green, I don't even mean technically representational. Like, yes. I don't even mean accurate to what we're seeing. It just, I really... I really want to capture that feeling of mm. being in Queenstown. People can look at my painting and it doesn't represent any particular place. Like I haven't, I haven't drawn a recognisable landscape that you go, oh, that's, you know, that's over on that street or that's over the hill that way. It's this amalgamation of all these different places and all these different drawings. And my hope is that people can look at it and go, oh, that's Queenstown. Like yeah. it's just a sort of feeling that you get from it is the hope.
0: Yeah, <laughs> is the hope. That's yeah, fantastic. Going back to these drawings, sort of these, these first initial drawings that you made as, as references as opposed to photographic images, when you see them up on the wall, you know, the stark white paper and then the, the intense black, there is a kind of uh, manic feeling about them that they have been drawn sort of in haste and and then to see them all up in the wall it, it's quite it's quite strong it's very strong when you're standing in front of it it does make you feel sort of like disoriented yeah. in a way and then for that to be the the starting blocks of this you know these final pieces that are capturing a feeling um you know that that i guess could be termed an, an iconic feeling yeah that's so, that's so funny too you know this this idea of an iconic feeling as opposed to the the place the landscape being iconic yeah yeah it's it's um, interesting to see them as the starting as the building blocks the start of the foundation of the the final works
1: yeah i i took them down this morning to put a painting up in their mm. place and i actually felt like the room's really missing something now cuz they've kept me company for the last two weeks as I've been building them up. And I really, I did like looking at them and they are a bit manic. They're sort of, um, someone pointed out to me that it's a lot like um, Frank Auerbach, the German British artist who, he's about 90 now, but his process is very similar. Mine, Mine is very similar to his in that he's a painter, he's an oil painter, but he does the same thing. He'll do stacks and stacks of drawings and he goes, you know, they're not necessarily good, they're not necessarily bad, they're whatever, and he does, he'll do like literal stacks and he'll keep maybe two that are interesting and throw the rest away and then use Mm. the process of drawing and the memory of the drawing to inform his works. Similar, he also doesn't use photos. Um, But he said that just because a drawing is fast doesn't mean it's not good. Mm. And I I really liked that because that's how I work.
0: When we first met, I think one of the first things you spoke about was your interest in lines and trying to capture emotion through lines. And the way that I internalised that was this idea of play, that I sort of feel like being as rawly emotional as possible comes from being able to experiment and play freely with the work. And I think that this idea of fast drawings and a lot of them, um, I think that there would be a lot of people who would find it very difficult to work that way uh, because we have this um, internal critic. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Everything must
0: be good. Yeah,
1: yeah. That was um, I had a teacher in second year at art school called uh, Maria Kunda And she was amazing. She Mm. just made everyone feel at ease because first and second year art school, there's a lot of insecurity Mm. um, because people haven't figured out what they're doing. Um, They don't like sharing their work to other people. They don't like making art in front of other people. Um, It's this whole insecure thing. And she just gave this fantastic speech that I could never recreate Mm. um, that was basically like, you will make bad art. Everyone makes bad art. It is important. You have to do it. Don't waste my time or your time by feeling bad about it. And it was like, it was really, it was really inspiring. I didn't, I didn't quite get it across, but she was just like, it was basically a very kind way of saying, get over yourself. You're not going to improve unless you make bad art. Ah. And I really took that in stride and just, I make so much bad art. Mm. All the, I have stacks and stacks, even in the gallery right now, I've got all these little study canvases that I did my experimentation on and my, you know, my playing and stuff. And some of it looks awful. And I went, well, cool. I know not to do that. I know not to mix you know, those mediums in that way or those colours in that way or those lines in that way. And it's just so important and it is, it's it's playing and, mm. and it's fun. And as soon as you let go of that fear of having to be perfect, it's immensely liberating, I think.
0: You know, what's really funny is that I had that exact same experience with a lecturer at uni when I was studying art. But it was not kind. Oh no. It was so unkind. I think everyone in that lecture room felt personally brutalized. I, I think he started his monologue by saying, What makes you think you'll make good art? Ooh. And it was the the whole tone of the room changed. It was
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm in the long run, it was very helpful, very same effect. Yeah. But in that moment, this big ego monster came up, I think, in all of us and felt just violent towards this person. I reckon,
1: (laughs) yeah, there's certain ways of approaching these things.
0: (laughs) I I definitely would pick your lecturer over mine.
1: Oh, she was so lovely. And I think the fact that she she framed it around her own practice Mm. as well to be like, you know, I have made lots of bad art. She's like, I have a PhD in art. Like yeah. I have been making art for X number of years. This is something I've seen in everyone around me. Yeah. So the fact that she wasn't like, you suck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she was like,
1: I sometimes suck <clears throat> as well.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting as as two people who both uh, work with with lines, I was thinking about your work and, t- and trying to understand your work from your point of view and not... Putting my thoughts and feelings on top of yours, okay. you know, and um, we were talking a lot about your relationship with the natural world, um, and that being a, a focus of the work that you're doing, and you trying to deeply understand a place. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I definitely went down this this rabbit hole. Um and I started thinking about the word frontier and its its definition essentially being like um you know lines and borders of uh various places or the the other definition was something along the lines of you know the the line a, a place at the at the extreme that uh, uh so the extreme of civilization where going beyond it is into the wilderness into the wild. Yeah. And um, I was talking to someone else recently who had described the West Coast or Queenstown as the as as a frontier, as the frontier.
1: Yeah, I like that.
0: But then um, there was a conversation you and I were having. I know this is jumping all over the place, but we were, I was telling you about um, that book that I had been reading uh, about the Japanese tourists coming to uh, Australia to ride their motorbikes in the desert and not realizing that petrol stations were few and far between and and as a result, dying. Yeah. And uh, the the final comment in that section of, of the writing was um, there is no frontier in this culture, in the Australian culture.
1: Yeah, right, okay. No frontier, like, between the people and the mm. wilderness?
0: I think speaking just within the idea of, I mean, what is what is the Australian culture and how does that relate to the wilderness? Because we don't have any direct relation necessarily to it in terms of our history. We, we came here and we cut it all down.
1: Mm, and we still are.
0: And we still are. So, yeah, I guess I'm thinking about this concept of frontier. I'm thinking about lines. Um, I'm thinking about how our culture can even relate to the wilderness and is it something that is... Is it something that is new?
1: I'm not sure. I think that's really interesting that you were asking about Australian culture in regards to the wilderness and it's it's all over the place really, isn't mm. it? I feel like...
0: I should stipulate, sorry, before you continue, obviously what I mean is white Australian culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. I think well, it's very polarised at the moment, especially you've got lots of people who... I mean, for their for their job sake and the sake of where they live and their homes being there for generations and those being the only available jobs, we've got people that do want to keep, you know, degrading it in various ways. Mm. And then we've got um, all the city folk who, you know, um, sort of jump on their high horse. This is me a little bit. Sort of jump <laughs> on their high horse and go, no, we can't cut those trees down. But it's so much more complicated than that. And we've just got this really complex, clashing dynamic culture towards wilderness it's it's so different for everyone even in tasmania everywhere that you live in tasmania it's going to there's going to be a a communal view and approach to this idea of a frontier to nature yeah i'm not really sure that's a that's a difficult one
0: <laughs> <laughs> well i was thinking too of um I, I, and i'm completely blanking on what you called it but it was this idea of as the generations move on how they
1: Oh, yeah. Um, Shifting baseline syndrome. So I've only learned that term in the last few months for my Honours project. And it's kind of this idea that generationally, incrementally, this idea of what's wild and what's natural is slowly being lost and decayed as things around us decay and fill with detritus and ruin. So our, our grandparents' generation would walk around a nature reserve and go, oh, I mean, this is okay, but, you know, there's there's fences in it. Like, it's fenced. This isn't really wild. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a human <clears> park. <throat> it's curated mm. for human use. It's not wild. But maybe I would go there now and be like, wow, this is great. Like, I'm I'm out of the suburbs and I'm in the wild. There's, there's birds, there's little hoppy animals of various descriptions and, you know, snakes. Oh, this is pretty wild. And then... As things get worse and these nature reserves fill up with burned out cars and old fencing and rubble from whatever, um, old structures, maybe my grandchildren's generation would go to that same reserve and say, oh, I love being in this reserve. It's so natural. Um, Because, yeah, it just... And with that incremental loss of what nature actually is, we care less about what happens to it. Um, Because with the baseline of what we expect from nature gets lowered, people can sort of pillage it more and more and more for, you know, capitalist gain or whatever,
0: Mm.
1: which is a terrifying thought.
0: (laughs) Mm. What's interesting is that in relation to the the West Coast or, or Queenstown, it's almost as if the inverse has happened in that you know that the previous generations the the way that the landscape or the wilderness looked was largely uh you know we talk about that that moonscape that yeah. alien world and as it's moved through in the in the generations the the, the uh rainforests have regenerated and are reclaiming the space and yeah. so but then but then that's interesting too because now we see all of this green whereas uh before, it would have just been all of that orange and red rust. And, but I also wonder about as, it's, as this has sort of come back, this, all of this greenery, which has sparked a lot of interest to, for creatives and other people outside of the West Coast to come here, I wonder if the danger of all of this green coming back is that now it can be commodified in a different way
1: yeah, I think that I think that is a real concern. And I'm I'm not sure about other artists, but it's not it's not just the grain that draws me, but like that that history of the degradation and just the immensely powerful force of nature that is reclaiming its land and like just walking down the streets and seeing houses like overgrown with trees and like the the wet has just made them crumble and just it's really easy to be awestruck in that Presence of nature being so powerful. It's it's not like anywhere I've really seen it before. Sorry, I got distracted. Um, no. What was your question? <laughs> oh, the commodification. Um, yeah, that is a real concern, and I'm not sure how I feel about it because I'm not a local. I'm not sure if I can really speak for that. I'm not sure if people look at me and go, "Oh, you know, look at this Hobart artist coming up here and <laughs> and, and and watching us and 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 judging." our community I'm um, not that I am um I worry that people might see me as you know someone coming in and like reaping these rewards of their special place I'm not sure
0: It's going to come down to intention right
1: Yeah and I hope I hope that my intention comes across in my work
0: I that, think so
1: <laughs> That's that's great um <gasps> that I making art for me has never been about you know getting famous or being hella rich or anything like that. That's um, when I do sell work, it's an added bonus. It helps me pay bills, which is great. Helps me mostly buy more art supplies. I think Mm. as soon as I get money coming in for selling artwork, I just go straight to an art shop (laughs) or wherever or or Bunnings or I don't know, (laughs) buy myself more art supplies, build up my workshop so I can keep making. Because really... The point of making art for me is really about being understood by others because the most special thing to me is being in nature and there's just this overwhelming, all of these overwhelming feelings. And I was saying to you the other day, especially if I'm with someone and I want to I voice that feeling to them, all I have the vocabulary to say is, wow, look at that. And it just feels so disappointing to, you know, be somewhere amazing or walk through, like the walk to the confluence. It's just, it's like walking through this magical woodlands, like this fairy woodlands. And all I can say is, how great is this? Mm. And it just, it feels, it just doesn't quite convey that feeling. And and I'm sure the people around me feel those same feelings. And I think someone that captures Queenstown really well, obviously, is Raymond Arnold. Mm. I look at his work and I feel understood. And that's something that I strive towards, definitely.
0: I have a couple of questions that I think relate to each other. Yep. What do you think, I mean, obviously you can't speak for every single person that's ever gone into the natural world, but yeah. for you, what is the drive for you to go, to go into the wild, go into the wilderness?
1: I feel like it's kind of just a bit of a reset or maybe escapism or something like that. When I'm walking with a friend or by myself, it's usually by myself. I, I feel like I'm getting away from having to think about uni or work or even my own, um, my own projects that I'm working on because, um, you know, it, it can be stressful. Like it, it's usually what I'm thinking about as I fall asleep. Um, <laughs> I'm usually thinking about, oh, what's that next thing? What, am I wanna, what do I want to do? It's always on my mind. Yeah. Um, I, I always feel like there's something going on. So to just walk in nature, it's like this meditative immersion and I just feel like every time I go in, especially when I'm drawing or like really looking around and taking it as much as I can, it really feels like I am building up a relationship with the landscape and the Tasmanian landscape specifically and um, and that's... Yeah, I'm not sure. It's just something that makes me feel really good, I suppose.
0: Mm. You know, it's really funny. We we did sort of vaguely discuss that poem by um, Kirkpatrick. Yep, I think it's Peter Kirkpatrick that was talking about why people are so attracted to going out into the into the wilderness, and um, as opposed to staying where they are, wherever that is. Um, And I think that living somewhere like the West Coast or I would say Tasmania in general, because wherever we are, we are surrounded by national parks, um, walking trails, uh, bike trails, uh, uh, you know, the King River rafting specifically here. There are so many different ways to um, engage with the outside. And I have often had a lot of people sort of say you know why don't you why don't you go and do this and I and I think oh well that does sound lovely also (laughs) this this, uh, I think a lot of people are not going to they're going to think that I'm ridiculous but where my house is there is green and dirt and trees shrubbery just it, it totally Um, it's it's sort of up against the side of this cliff and then it's completely surrounded at the front. And I sit on my little landing with my cup of coffee and I'm out there a lot doing that. (laughs) And I I feel like I'm in it. Yeah, right. I'm already in it and sometimes I'm not even aware of it. Yeah. Sometimes I am and sometimes I'm not. And I don't, I already have it. So I, I guess in a lot of ways I don't feel a great need to, go out and have more of it.
1: Well, like that poem you were talking about, um, he sort of makes this little jab by saying, like, people only really go for walks so they can look at the view from the top of the mountain or something (laughs) like that. And I think that's really funny because um, when I did the Overland track in one of the visitor books or whatever they're called at one of the huts, um, there was this quote, I can't remember who it's by, but it was basically that hiking is just being miserable in nature. (laughs) And... I kind of really related to it because as we were, you know, as we were trudging through like the ice and the snow, and the blisters were growing on our feet, and for lots of parts of the journey, it was a whitewash around us. We couldn't see anything. We were cold, and we were in pain, and we were hungry. But it was still really enjoyable, even though there was that misery to it. I think it it, it has the both, and they balance out. It's got the it's got the sort of misery, <laughs> the, the enjoyable misery, and then it's got the really fantastic feeling of like, you know, like the sublime and romanticism Mm. and all of that stuff um, just like sort of embodied within you as you do look over the next hill at the next mountain. And that's really cool. But also just in general, I think that walking through nature for me is what really makes me feel like I'm building a connection with it Mm. because I'm often drawing while I walk. And I think that makes my drawings a lot messier. But I think for me that, when I stop walking and I maybe sit down or yeah. squat or whatever, and I start drawing, I lose something. So it's really for me, it's about walking in nature is a really important part of it.
0: That's really interesting. I, I yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of that. I, I guess in my mind, I just assumed that you stopped and sat down.
1: No, <laughs> not usually.
0: But that's um, that's a really interesting way of, I guess, communing with the natural world is to be moving within it while documenting it in that way it's not it's not even true documentation is it yeah
1: yeah I'm not really looking for a, a static image yeah I guess it's kind of you know it's flowing around me I suppose and if you look at my paintings that are in the gallery for tonight you can see that these landscapes and things that I've done they have all sorts of different lines and landscapes that you can see within them they're just you know They're, they're shifting, um, Mm. yeah.
0: How does this experience you've had, I guess, meeting Queenstown in a way, meeting this, this world, this part of the world or the state, how does this place feel? And, um, how does your place in Hobart feel?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm really going to miss it here. Hobart feels almost kind of sterile
0: Mm. in
1: in a way. It's really beautiful there. I do love it. It's just, um, yeah, I think maybe just because I'm in a bit of a routine there and I'm not going out and exploring and finding the different bits and pieces and not engaging with strangers, it it just feels like in my head two very separate places, maybe because one is home and I Mm. do have these walls around me.
0: More whereas, whereas
1: here I've just got this window separating <laughs> me from everything. But at home, you know, I've got my, my brick wall separating me and I've got my, my routines of uni and work and things that I do. But I do think that coming here has really expanded my visual language, which is, you know, the lines that I use and the information that they can convey based on how they interact with one another, you know, the, the width, the, the speed at which they're applied, um, the repetition, the compositions, all of that is just this visual language that I'm learning to be understood, like we were talking about before. And I feel like this, these new words, I suppose, that I've learned, um, I'm really looking forward to taking them back to Hobart and trying to translate them into a Hobart landscape to see if the language between here and there is very different. I'm not sure if this just sounds like a bunch of art wank but no. yeah but um I'm really looking forward to seeing to seeing that so see if because I think they do have I think it's kind of like they're the same language but I don't know it's like a Venn diagram with some mm-hmm. overlap I'm not really sure but I'm really looking forward to it
0: no you're right you sort of you get to the top of the hill and you see the beautiful thing and just like you said it's oh wow that's <laughs> Lovely, or yeah, and it's not—it's not enough, and or it doesn't feel like it's enough, and it's really interesting this idea of you know the the, the language that we've constructed to to describe nature, to describe a view is incredibly limited.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I think the place I got that idea from, my friend Sky lent me a book by Robert McFarlane called Landmarks, Mm. and um, he's this British guy and he goes around all of the British isles or whatever to all the remote places, to all the regional places where they still do speak different dialects, and he specifically is looking for um, landscape words in their languages and the specific things that they mean. And it's just this, I don't know, like this lexicon um, or like this dictionary of all these different words to do with the land that are so specific that we just don't need anymore because we're not in the landscape anymore. We don't need it as much for survival individually as a personal um, thing. There was one word that was like describing the degradation of the bottom of a shrub where animals have been passing through it. Mm. And so instead of saying that whole sentence, it was just a word and they'd point at it and say the word and they knew what it was. And then there were like six different words for the type of wind that comes up a cliff and just stuff like that. It was a really fascinating book and I thought, wow, like our landscape language is so limited. Mm. So that's sort of what has led me to where I am with this.
0: That's really interesting, and I, I I feel like I might have already spoken about this on the on the podcast before, but I sometimes I record in short spurts, and sometimes there's a, a long time between recordings, and so I can't remember. But in Malimbimbi, because a lot of you know um, hitchhiking is totally legal. Uh, there are a lot of people um, who are living there that don't have homes or even caravans or things like that. There is a, and I, I'm not even sure where it comes from, but it's sort of like it's a visual language that you can sort of carve on a tree or, um, you know, write something on a rock or, and it, there are all of these different signs and symbols that are describing something to the traveller of what is there so um one of them would say in this area the uh houses the, the people that live here are generally um helpful or um there'll be a sign that says don't stay here there'll be a and it yeah, or a sign for different animals that we are, have been seen here. Oh wow, stuff yeah. like that. So it's it's almost like there's a visual language of how helping people relate to the places that they're in, um, or you know, it signs for it is safe to sleep here, it isn't safe to sleep here. Yeah, yeah. So it does remind me of those these words that have been uh, taken out of our our language to describe yeah. things and to describe natural things, whereas these signs and symbols are describing how we relate to these things.
1: Yeah, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting.
1: And that's what I do, like, back to lines again. <laughs> that's what I do really love about lines is that you can have, you know, you can have really ordered lines, like like a script that's, that's pretty clear. There's only one way to understand, like, the written English language, you know. That's just a collection of lines, but it's very clear and... There's just the one way. And then you've got, you've got sort of symbols or diagrams and they a little bit of abstraction starts to come in with those, I think, um, depending on the specific situation. And then I suppose what I'm trying to do is not go so abstract that you go, well, what is, what is that? <laughs> but to sort of have this, uh, this sort of mix of ordered and disordered lines that mesh together and can't, can't just be understood in one way because that's not what I'm trying to convey because mm. everyone does experience the landscape differently and if I want to share that experience of landscape, I can't just make people look at it my one way. Mm. So I'm trying to have this real sort of approachable, approachable language, I guess, that can be understood by everyone in their own complicated, multifaceted way, I guess
0: trying to capture some sort of essence of a thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, which is, I think, an endless process. I don't think I'm ever going to stop making art because I don't think I'll ever quite get it, and I think that is totally fine with me.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess that's sort of this investigation into these wild, natural places and showing them to other people to have those places be understood are you Are you learning anything about yourself when you're in these when you're having these experiences?
1: That's a really good question. I feel like maybe not consciously, mm. but subconsciously, I'd say that since I've started these explorations of place maybe over the last 2 years, I feel like I have had a greater understanding of who I am as a person which I feel like in your early 20s, you're still really, really grappling with that. Yeah. And I sort of, I think I only really realised this year, like I'm quite solid in who, I mean, you can never be fully solid, but I'm the most solid I've ever been in understanding who I am as a person, which has never been super easy. Like mm. it's it's easy to be sort of influenced quite heavily by those around you yeah. or just for, you know, your own personal reasons struggling to have an identity that you're sure of. Yeah,
0: that big I, I am. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but basically in my limited English vocabulary, I am just a person that likes being in nature and meeting other creative people and that's... Pretty. That's pretty much it. Those are my. Those are my very strong, I am's. And then the rest isn't as important.
0: Yeah, yeah. I really, I really like that. You know, we we when we talk about the self, we we try to talk about it from so many different angles. You know, does it boil down to values? Does it boil boil down to external? What you know, I, when we talk about fashion, there's this big push to be like, this is how I display myself for the world to see yeah you know is it a psychological thing is it based on how our brains work like what yeah. how do we talk about the self and if and this idea of you know if the self isn't fully formed then how can it relate to another self and or and and not just that but then you know how does it relate to the the world at large yeah um so it's interesting i I was talking to was a subject for a photographer, and we were talking afterwards, and she asked me about what it feels like to live here. And I think that I had said to her that the biggest thing for me is that I feel like I see myself reflected back to me in the natural world because it is it is flawed. Yeah, and I think that if there if we can say that there is some human aspect in nature, I think it's that.
1: Yeah, wow, I really like that. You know. Yeah.
0: And I, so I think that that's started talking about myself, but that would be my relationship to the natural world is that I, I think, oh, okay, same. Yeah. Yeah, we're the same like that, you know. So to have this fully formed self in order to connect with something, I, that's going to be a fallacy. Yeah. It's hard to break down those arbitrary rules and just be with something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I
0: like p- I like yours a lot. You know, I am someone who likes going out into nature and I like meeting creative people. That's perfect.
1: That's, that's all I need. Yeah. I mean, obviously, my loving partner and all those things as well. <laughs> and the chickens. <laughs> and the chickens. Oh, God, and the chickens. <laughs> they are so cute, so dumb, so cute. <laughs>
0: um. Well, you know, I've started asking at the end of these, and I guess it can be a really difficult question, but is there something that you haven't said about yourself or your work or where you're at that you would like to say?
1: Um, I'm not really sure. I do remember when we were talking the other day, you asked me this really interesting question, which I'd never thought about as I was saying how important it is to be understood and I, I find that my most successful artworks aren't the ones that sell but are the ones where people pull me aside and say, this is what I understood from this work and mm. it's exactly what I was going for. And they, they tell me they had a really emotional response and they say I felt like I was immersed, you know. Yeah. And, and those, those are the ones I remember and those are the ones that make me the most happy. And you asked me, Were you understood as a child? Mm. Um, And I said at the start of the podcast I had the best upbringing. I had two very loving parents um, who were very generous with their time. They spent a lot of time with me and my brother. But because I'm transgender and when I was younger, that wasn't really uh, a thing that was known about. Mm. I was five years old when I first said, I want to be a boy like Tom. Mum was kind of like, oh, like, cool, <laughs> like you can keep wearing shorts and daggy T-shirts and, you know, running around with your shirt off and playing in mud and climbing trees, but we we don't have the information to do yeah. anything else. So they were very supportive. Um, it wasn't until I was in year 12 that I knew that trans men actually existed. So that was 2013. And then and maybe started transitioning a year or two later, which obviously they were very supportive, even though, you know, dad's like a boomer from the country <laughs> um but yeah as a kid i didn't feel understood like i had to wear a dress at school um mm. i had long hair because i felt like i couldn't cut it short and when i told my friends i was cutting it short i got so much negative feedback they were like don't cut your hair off like or mm. you know it was never i was always in trouble for wearing my sports uniform because it had pants, or I'd wear shorts under my dress because I felt more comfortable. And I really, I didn't feel understood by everyone around me, even those who were very loving. And I'm not really sure if they're strictly related, but I just thought that was a fascinating question that you asked. Yeah.
0: When you, I mean, this has been a nature-heavy talk. You know, we were just talking about the, the idea of self in relation to other. When you're out in the wilderness that idea of you know giving up the ghost giving up ego not having to be anything yeah do you do you feel that when you're out there you're not thinking i'm i'm george the boy or <laughs> i'm george the artist or i'm george the partner or you know, yeah you just know what
1: i think so especially I'd say especially when I'm on my own but yeah, I don't cuz it's really hard in a group of people for me to not think, "Oh, like I am trans." Like it it, mm. it it's always at the back of my mind. I'm not, you know, it's not at the front of my mind. I'm not going to say anything about it, but it's always just slightly there like it's, like, "Oh, I'm you know, I am different, but it's so weird cuz I feel like I'm this stealth ninja because people don't know unless I tell them. I'm very open about it. I don't hide it. Mm. But if I'm meeting new people, I I always do feel a little bit off because I spent 20 years socialised as a female. And so that's still kind of how I socialise. I'm far more comfortable talking to women. I don't really know how to talk to blokes because they, like, they just socialise differently as teenagers. And it's been really weird socially to go from one to the other because before I transitioned I was... I found it a lot easier to talk to guys than to girls. Mm. And it's just, it's been this huge flip. And so when I am existing in the man-made world and with people around me, it's really hard not to think about. So, yeah, when I am in nature, I feel like I do give that all up and I am just existing and I'm not thinking about that at all. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm just, I'm just there.
0: I'm wondering... When you're in these social situations, because there's this, again, like there's the expectations that exist within societies, within this culture that we live in that don't exist outside of it, you saying, you know, it's in your mind. And let me preface this by saying in terms of my, um, uh, I have a mental illness that I'm, I, again, same sort of thing. I don't talk about it, um, but I'm upfront about it. Um, that that I will have for the rest of my life. That is just managing it. I'm fine. I'm great. Yeah. Um, but it it's it's very frequently on my mind, and the feeling that I have, and I'm wondering if you have it, is almost like I'm. Oh, what if I get found out? Uh, what if it it feels almost like an exposure thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe that's why I like to take control of it and be so open about it. A lot of my um, trans and non-binary friends back in Hobart, they are stealth. So they, you know, like their workmates don't know Mm -hmm. and their classmates or whatever, the people in the broader community around them don't know. Um, So maybe... Yeah, I mean, I in my first few years at uni, I was in my first few years of transition still. So I wasn't open about it. And there was actually that fear, definitely, of being caught out. And mm-hmm. I was in the most welcoming, you know, queer-friendly environment in an art school. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like it's 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 celebrated there. It's not something I had to be afraid of. But, yeah, there was that fear of, you know, being discovered, even though I knew there were no consequences. But Mm. I I, I remember being really worried that people would look at me differently, even if they were accepting. They'd be like, oh, like I have to treat George differently.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really funny. Um, Not really funny, but (laughs) I think it's funny that uh, as we've spoken, I can sort of pinpoint a couple of moments in our lives. You know, we've just met this week, but I think, oh, wow, I had that experience with my lecturer. You had that experience here. Yeah. And I remember that really the the height of my mental health problems and the road to sort of being uh, diagnosed and getting into appropriate treatments and things like that were really began at the time that I was at uni and I had um, a, you know sort of my first quote-unquote breakdown and I was diagnosed I was misdiagnosed and I had taken a little bit of time off and I came back and the people again art school very welcoming the people that are that I was close to, I I came back and I had spoken to this um, person that I was friends with and I said, oh, they've just diagnosed me uh, with bipolar, which again later on realised that it wasn't. Um, And he said, oh, that's so great. That's so in keeping with the stereotype of the artist.
1: That's a weird response. (laughs) And
0: it was, I felt... So, and I think that I really just clammed up yeah. after that because it was this horrible experience that I'd just gone through and he had just treated it like it was a joke. Yeah. And so I was just, okay, suck it all in and yeah. you don't talk about it anymore.
1: Yeah, because even though it's not like an overtly like, oh, like, you know, ostracization or anything, mm. it's yeah, it's kind of even worse.
0: Yeah, it's this. I thought, you know, I thought that perhaps if someone's going to understand it's, it's creatives and makers and, uh, you know, that's meant to be, I don't know, like, and also as a, as a queer person, I, you have this expectation that this is my family. This could be my family. These are my people. Yeah. And you're like, oh, no, still can be assholes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I do remember, this is totally off topic, but someone saying something about, oh, trans people, yeah, yeah they're all great. It's like... No, there are some real dickheads amongst <laughs> us, like just like any other community.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Well, this has been this has been really lovely. Um, if people want to see your work, uh, find you, get in contact with you, how can they do that?
1: I've got a website in the works, but it's not. It doesn't have a d- domain name or anything yet. But my Instagram is at george.kennedy. Apart from that. Yeah, I'm just at the art school. So if you're at art school, I'm up above printmaking, first door on the left.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been great.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This was awesome.
0: No worries. This was local. This project would not be possible without the incredible community of folks who make time to chat, nor would it be possible without the tremendous support of the West Coast community. If this episode offered you something good, please consider rating the show via Apple Podcasts. The podcast is produced by Carter Pierce and myself. Digital media is supported by Tess Gilfeder. Our artwork was made by Gigi Quartz. The podcast is funded in part by the Regional Arts Fund. For more information on the podcast and its guests, please go to localthepodcast.com or localthepodcast on Facebook and Instagram.